five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. Tell y'all a tale about a king named Sisyphus. He pushed a boulder up a hill, then it fell down, then it fell down. And then he pushed it up, then it fell down, then it fell down. And he did that over and over again for the rest of eternity because Zeus condemned him to do it for the rest of eternity and it sucked. But it was his boulder, so he kept pushing it. And one must imagine him happy. All right, guys, that's my LP. It's called uh, Sisyphus. Get ready. It's going to go to the top of the charts. Uh, all right. Absurd creation. So I'm doing the third chapter all in one episode. Uh, primarily one because let's get this myth of Sisyphus series done out of the way so we can move on to bigger and better things. And also because I'm going to skip the second section which is titled Kirilov, which has to do with a character from Dostoevsky's The Possessed, which I have not read. I really want to read Dostoevsky, but I just haven't had the time. And I'll get to it eventually, but you know, if I had read it before doing this series, I would have definitely done that section. But I just don't really have the context and I just don't really feel like I'm at a place to I, I really don't feel like I'm qualified to explain it to you guys. So not going to do that, but I highly recommend that you go and read that section because it is uh, it does have some really good philosophical insights. Even if you haven't read Kirilov <clears throat> or if you haven't read The Possessed or any Dostoevsky for, for that matter. So, with that said, uh, but before we begin, I wanted to throw out the reminder that my novel is now titled On Death and God. It's about a guy named John who travels through hell to slay the God and save everything he ever loved. And it's available both in the link in the description as well as on my website at into-the-absurd.com. So if you want to support the podcast, go check that out. We also have some merch, which is also posted in the link in the description. So I think it's a shirt, a bottle opener, stuff like that. Uh, I'd also like to get feedback from you guys. I know. So the uh, Spotify for podcasters, they do like wrapped. If you're listening on Spotify, you'll know that, you know, at the end of every year, there's a wrapped that everyone posts on their stories that no one looks at. Um, but they also send it out to podcasters. And what I found out was that 45 listeners who have, who listen to Into the Absurd, 45 listeners have Into the Absurd as their number one podcast. So thank you to you 45 people, you gracious, humble ears that listen to my voice. That is wonderful. Uh, I want to hear from you guys. I want to know what, and I mean, not just you 45 people, but also everyone else. I want to hear from you as to 
what you want to see from the podcast, what kind of content you like, uh, what your favorite kind of content is that uh, that's been on the show, and like maybe some guest requests, subject matter requests, things like that. Uh, I'd love to hear from you guys, get your feedback. Uh, any sort of comment would be very much appreciated. Uh, I, I'd love to just hear what what I can improve on, what what you've been kind of missing or what's been lacking, you know, just whatever, just so, you know, I can give you more content that you like and that you appreciate. Uh, just because, you know, uh, without the 45 of you, I probably wouldn't really even feel motivated to keep doing this. So it's kind of just, it's kind of one of those things like, you know, you because you're there, I feel like this has a purpose for me to do. So I'd love to hear from you guys and just see what kind of content you want me to bring out to you. I know one listener reached out uh, and asked about my uh, doing like this here in a few months. I want to, I, I started reading the Bible and I want to start doing some things kind of, kind of relate uh, biblical pieces to things that I've gone over with Nietzsche and Camus and things like that. And, and existentialism just so we can find some some common ground between existentialism and Christianity just so we're not always like oh the freaking bible you know what I mean just find something out of it so we can be like oh yeah no like I like this part right so he suggested I think Echolestes or something from the Old Testament so I'll check that out I guess uh, Camus got a lot of his ideas from there something or other so Anyways, uh, hit me up, and to do that, go to my website, into-the-absurd.com, and scroll down to the contact section. There you can reach out to me. So go ahead, do that. I hear some people listen on YouTube. Uh, so if you do listen on YouTube, you know, you can just hit the comments. So there you go. All right. So let's do this. So the first section is philosophy and fiction. So here, as you can deduce from the title, and I will share my screen for you YouTubers out there. Let's do that. So, <clears throat> Camus will be describing the relationship between philosophy and fiction and why these two are absurd. Quote, conquest or play acting, multiple loves, absurd revolt are tributes that man pays to his dignity in a campaign in which he is defeated in advance. It is merely a matter of being faithful to the rule of battle. That thought may suffice to sustain a mind. It has supported and still supports whole civilizations. War cannot be negated. One must live it or die of it. So it is with the absurd. It is a question of breathing with it, of recognizing its lessons and recovering their flesh. In this regard, the absurd joy par excellence is creation. Art and nothing but art, said Nietzsche. We have art in order to not die of the truth. End quote. So the absurd as a campaign in which one is defeated in advance, right? This is what was brought up in the, uh, the conquest section, right? Where, where the conqueror explains that they have an affinity towards lost causes, right? So the, the seducer, Don Juan, namely, the actor, the rebel, 
and the Conqueror all have in common the fact that they knowingly fight losing battles. They fight knowing that they'll lose or they, you know, they do their thing knowing that it's going to end, right? They know that it's fading. They know they're bound to die. And as an analogy of the absurd man, this works great since the absurd man lives in awareness that life cannot be lived forever, right? That they know that they're going to die. They're very, very aware of their mortality. And man, this just makes me think back to when I was in high school, middle school, and I really started conceptualizing what it mean to die, what it what it meant to die. And I'd just be laying there, just like staring at the ceiling, kind of just like, shit, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to become nothing, like nothingness. That's, And it's so incomprehensible. And I think that feeling of incomprehensible is really kind of where the absurd stems from. So keep that in mind. It's kind of like that. And you have that incomprehensibility, but yet you keep going anyways, right? So if the absurdist is defeated in advance, if this is all just incomprehensible, if we're all going to die, what then shall they do? According to Camus, the awareness of death forces the absurdist to remain faithful to the rules of the battle. That is, since the absurdist does not have an eternal ideal, the ideals they live by are those governed by society. Right? And, like, not even that, but they, they have respect. They have chivalry. Right? They, they live by the rules of the game. They play the game. They follow the law, they abide by societal customs while not being fully sucked into the idea ideologies of the modern world, right? They kind of just get by. Now the line, war cannot be negated. One must live of it or die of it. So it is with the absurd, end quote. Oh. Here Camus is comparing war to the absurd. Which makes sense, since he has repeated several times that the absurd is a conflict and a contradiction, right? It is a war. It's a war between meaning, on one hand, and the knowledge that that meaning is unattainable, unknowable, inaccessible. So it makes sense that it's a war. In this context the conquest section makes more sense, right? The, the conqueror wages war with foreign lands and foreign peoples just as the absurdist wages war with the absurd, just as the absurd wages war upon itself. Finally, Camus brings us to the main point of this chapter in the Nietzsche quote. We have art in order to not die of the truth. Truth here, right? can often be harsh the truth of death is perhaps the most deadliest right and indeed we see that in western myths knowledge is one of the greatest of all evils right art sublimates the harsh truths of reality into something beautiful right and and, and when he's saying die of the truth a lot of people they fight wars over the truth right they kill each other over the truth but art art sublimates what we believe to be true 
into multiple truths. So something we can kind of all see something from, right? It turns it into something beautiful. It is the antidote to truth. Yet it is the antidote in more than one way, right? For instance, oftentimes in, in the modern day, society hangs on a certain truths as necessary and fundamental. This fundamental thinking leads to censorship, loss of thinking, servitude, nationalism, and the like, thereby enslaving society to certain ideologies. We become entrenched in certain ideologies. Art has the ability to separate the literality from wisdom, which reminds us that truth is not nearly as important as wisdom, right? It's not as important as understanding. Understanding is greater than knowledge. Wisdom is greater than knowledge. Art transcends truth because it does not speak wisdom, but in many ways it breathes wisdom into us, into our souls. At least in my opinion, it's it's a feeling. It brings about a feeling that remains with us, right? Because even if you forget what someone said to you, you'll always remember how they made you feel, right? You might forget what was in a book, but you'll, you'll remember how that book made you feel, right? Like you're not going to remember the whole Harry Potter series, but you'll remember that it made you feel good. You were... It was an adventure, it made you feel love, and it taught you a few things about life, right? So in the next paragraph we have, quote, It is certain that a new torment arises wherever another dies. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard a frustrated person say the exact line, quote, There's always something. Referring to there always being some kind of conflict in which they need to deal with, right? Uh, the air conditioner breaks, uh, the the pool cover is broken, or the my car got hit, right? There's always something. Everyone experiences this. There's always something else you have to fix or resolve or solve that arises after you've fixed, solved, or resolved something, right? This is one of Camus' main points in the essay, right? This is... That's my LP, right? You, uh, you, you push the, you push the rock up the hill, and then it, it just falls back down, right? That's that's the main point. That's what the the last chapter of the Mrs. Sisyphus is all about, Sisyphus, namely, right? So, every quiet walk down the mountain is accompanied by an intense push up a hill, right? There's always another hill to push our boulders up. As I mentioned before, this is also another main theme the, that there's always something in the Netflix limited series Beef. While there are many ways to deal with the always something phenomenon, the moon proposes most heavily the act of rebellion. That is, rebel against the idea that there there's always something, right? Or rebel that there being always something is a punishment against you. When in reality, it's just, <laughs> there's just always something because you make it so, right? That's, that's your struggle. Quote, we always end up, ha end up by having the appearance of our truths. All existence for a man turned away from the eternal 
is but a vast mime under the mask of the absurd. Creation is the great mime. End quote. Here, Camus is proposing that existence involves a certain level of mimicking. So this kind of relates back to the, the acting chapter, right? If nothing can be created or destroyed, this implies that there is no real creation. There is only mimicking. There's only acting, only recreating, repurposing. We recreate things that we have already seen in such a way that we make a unique representation of already created things, right? The color, what, the color yellow? Or the color orange is just red and yellow, right? So orange is just a new color that was just created by old colors, right? So it's it's not anything new. So one way we do this is through a routine. I think this is another reason why Camus uses the myth of Sisyphus to formulate his idea on the absurd man, right? Sisyphus is continuously embarking upon the very same never-ending task of pushing his boulder the hill. He essentially mimics himself with every trek up the mountain. Life is, in many ways, a mimicking of behavior we see other people do in real life. Or on TV, right? Or in, in movies. The, the artist creates things they have once seen somewhere else. right? This all reminds me of E. Unibus Plurum which uh, we've, we've gone over on the podcast, in which David Foster Wallace describes how television has basically turned us into a society that seeks the spectacle. That is, we live and act as though we ourselves are on television, right? We want to be the main character on a movies, right? Because if we're constantly watching TV, we'll start acting like the people in television shows, and we even see today people are constantly just saying catchphrases, <laughs> you know, they're saying all these like, like we lit bro, you know, we, we out here, you know, like pe people are always saying these catchphrases that get repeated over and over again that you see on TikTok or and all these things. And like, even I say, you know, I'll say bro a lot or like lit, you know, like I say stuff like that all the time with my, uh, with my, I was going to say my homies, <laughs> my friends. And, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll just, it's kind of an act of mimicking. Society mimics itself. It's, and we mimic television shows. And television shows mimic television shows. And if television shows are supposed to represent what is in real life, right, and we see that, we're going to start representing what's in television. And then television then begins to mimic our lives, which we were just mimicking television. So it's like this. Everything cycle, and that's kind of what uh, E Unibus Plurum is about. Out of one, many. Um, one thing's created and it's mimicked constantly and over and over again, right? And that's also kind of the, well, that's also kind of the Nietzsche quote, right? Once an ideal is created, it immediately becomes a retrograde movement because once it's created, it disperses into many different things, right? And I'll, uh, I'll bring that up later, but quote, for the absurd man, it is not a matter of explaining and solving, but of experiencing and describing. Now, this quote is where Camus really expresses his viewpoint on why the philosopher and the fiction writer are absurd. Unlike the mathematician or the scientist, the philosopher and the fiction writer 
write experiences and descriptions, not explanations and solutions. They write not to tell you an explicit truth, but rather to allow your mind to come to many truths. This point is brought home in the next paragraph with, quote, Explanation is useless, but the sensation remains, and with it, constant attractions of a universe inexhaustible in quantity. The place of the work of art can be understood at this point, end quote. So a lot of times, uh, I already kind of brushed over this, but a lot of times when something is explained to us, we might forget the words or like, you know, the specific facts that were explained to us. But there's something about it that we're going to remember. We're going to remember the feeling of the explanation and some of the intuitive thoughts that, that stem from that, right? We're going to remember the theme, right? If you read a book, you're going to remember the theme, at least. At the very least, you're going to remember the theme, right? So you, you kind of, you get a wisdom from an explanation, and the wisdom is the thing you remember. And this wisdom reminds us that there is no limit to how much we can obtain. And that where the work of art comes into play, um, we, we create art to obtain that sensation of wisdom. And creation, while not killing or collecting the past, exhausts it in order to form a new future. Quote, it marks both the death of an experience and its multiplication. And remember what uh, what we talked about earlier and what Camus keeps repeating is that we can't unify or what, what can't be unified is multiplied by the absurd man. And for the absurdist, everything dies. Nothing can be unified, so everything is multiplied. And the death of all things comes the multiplication of new things. Right? Out of one, many. Now, we've mentioned Peter Zapp's Last Messiah several times on the podcast before, right? But he, he really comes into play in the myth of Sisyphus because what he's talking about is very similar. You know, he's talking about how we, the, the four different ways that we, we repress death. I won't get too into it, but uh, the, the fourth way is sublimation, right? We create art. We sublimate our pain and misery into something beautiful. So... He claimed that art was a sublimation of the misery of life and the fear of death. Uh, and we, we create art to distract ourselves from this misery and fear. Now, Camus negates this claim, which is, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, the first time I read the myth of Sisyphus, I hadn't read Zap. So when I'm, I'm reading it now, I can kind of see how he negates it. So, quote, it does not offer an escape for the intellectual ailment. That's that's art that he's talking about. Rather, it is one of the symptoms of the ailment which reflects it throughout a man's whole thought. But the first time it makes the mind get outside itself and places it in opposition to others, not for it to get lost, but to show it clearly the blind path that all have entered upon. In the time of the absurd reasoning, creation follows indifference and discovery. End quote. So I think part of this reasoning is the stubbornness of the absurd man. Um, 
we discussed it in previous episodes, right? To, to give any indication the absurd man is trying to escape his intellectual ailment would cause most of Camus' argument to kind of collapse, right? Especially when he actually discusses the myth of Sisyphus, right? If the myth of Sisyphus, um, if his act is kind of just to repress death, you know, if he's just kind of pushing the bowler to distract himself, that kind of takes away Camus' argument, right? So I, I can't ignore Camus' insight here. Art is a symptom of our fear and despair and suffering in the light of life, right? But this symptom goes outside and beyond one's own mind, thereby displaying just how absurd the mind is, right? Art shows us that sight is the illusion. That is, we're blind. There is no absolute truth to shed light on, right? There is no, there's nothing on the outside of Plato's cave. Uh, and art reveals this. It reveals that our perception of reality is nowhere close to the actual nature of reality, right? Nothing can show a perfect representation. We only have our translations, right? So when, when we get outside of that, when, when we get outside of Plato's cave, we realize that the light that we see is that we were blind when we were in the cave, right? And we're still blind. We realize that we're still blind, right? That's kind of what Camus is saying here. Nothing can show perfect representation. We only have our translations, but we only translate when we become indifferent to differences, right? We sum all leaves into the same concept, and the word of leaf is created, right? So, common question in philosophy, or even in just the modern day, is this. Can you separate a creator from their creations? A modern example of this is Kanye West. He is an extremely controversial rapper where, in conversation, you'll hear people say things like, quote, I love his music, but I'm not sure how I feel about him as a person, right? Or... When Russia invaded Ukraine, I know, like, maybe this isn't true, but I know some stores, they just stopped selling Russian vodka <laughs> in order to politically support the U.S. and Ukraine, which I think is just, just silly. Now, I, I think in many ways, the argument that you cannot separate a creator from their creation is extremely flawed. It's similar to saying that if you don't like your friend's parents, you shouldn't be friends with your friend. And uh, I think that's just ridiculous. However, a creation is very much something that comes from the inner core of the person who created it, right? With that said, it's something difficult to ignore. And for, for Camus, he says, quote, The idea of an art detached from its creator is not only outmoded, it is false. For the work of art likewise is a construction, and everyone knows how monotonous the great creators can be. For the same reason as a thinker, the artist commits himself and becomes himself in his work, end quote. So to Camus' point, he's not making a moral argument about this, right? Because a lot of times when people make uh, arguments on this topic, they're kind of making a moral judgment here, right? Like if a bad person writes something, they're like, oh, well, they're connected to, you know, they wrote this thing, so I can't read it, right? Um, like, uh, 
Ted Kaczynski, like, you know, Ted Kaczynski was a bad person, right? He, you know, he killed people, right? For no, he killed, you know, very innocent people. But just because he killed people doesn't mean that industrial society in its future isn't a great essay, right? It's a very insightful essay. Now, that doesn't mean that that still like he he still did bad things right but he still also wrote a good essay right now i'm not just gonna not read an essay because the person who wrote the essay was a bad person right if the essay was good but that doesn't mean that that essay isn't still a part of ted Ted kaczynski right but Camus isn't making a moral judgment. It's not his place to decide whether a person is good or bad. That's irrelevant to him. What matters is that a person is their creation. That's his point. So, yeah. A bad person can create something beautiful that millions of people enjoy. But that thing they created is still them. And in fact, Camus... Is arguing that art or the, the artist isn't really anyone until they create. They become themselves in their art. That is, when they are truly themselves, they, they're an artist, right? They're, their art is an expression, a unique expression of who they are on the inside. So... I, I like this viewpoint because it shows us how incredibly complex people are, especially artists. It is neither a person's actions or their art that makes them who they are. It's all the above. We're, we're multifaceted. We're complex. We're not just one thing, right? We're, uh, we're dynamic characters in our movies, right? We're, we're not static. Because remember, what the absurdists can't unify, they multiply, right? Oftentimes, the creator is an absurd creator. They multiply themselves in their art since they can't really find a unifying self within. Right? They they aren't really anyone in particular, and most art expresses that. It's important to note here that, quote, the absurd creator does not prize their work. End quote. This is for many reasons, but to name a few, right? We, we have, uh, they, they exhaust instead of collect, right? They recognize that everything fades and they don't prize themselves, which again is their art in many ways, right? So that they don't prize their work. On the next page, Camus brings us back to what he wrote in the conquest section regarding how the conqueror, while preferring action, has not forgotten uh, how to think, right? Here he expresses this differently with, quote, Expression begins where thought ends. Once we come to the conclusion of our thoughts, we act them out. And the absurdist who constantly comes to conclusions of their thought is likewise constantly expressing. For the most part, this is done through art and action. Camus gives the example of music here, right? Music is an interesting art form because it is something very close to mathematics. In that sense, it is very absurd because the various vibrations of music, extremely patterned and meticulous, meet our inhuman universe. 
it is something absolutely beautiful to our ears, yet knowingly meaningless to everything else. It's just vibrations in the air, right? Remember Nietzsche's quote, life without music would be a mistake. And music, I think, is akin to the absurd. It is the audible expression of absurdity. And as such, it would indeed be a mistake to live life without it because it deeply reflects the fleeting nature of meaning in a seemingly meaningless world. It shows that the simplest things, simple changes in frequency, tempo, and rhythm, just vibrations through the air, can create something that is both mere sound waves and incredible beauty at the same time, right? The great composer and musician is not trying to make music, but rather to create a world that our minds can inhabit. They're creating a space, right? They're filling the space in the world. And we're entering into that space, right? Music changes the entire tone of a situation. In many ways, a new song can feel as if we are stepping into a different reality. Same goes with the writer. Quote, the writer has given up telling stories and creates his own universe. The great novelists are philosophical novelists. That is, the contrary of thesis writers. But, in fact, the preference they have shown for writing in images rather than in reasoned arguments is revelatory of a certain thought that is common to them all. Convinced of the uselessness of any principle of explanation and sure of the educative message of perceptible appearance. They consider the work of art both as an end and a beginning. It is the outcome of an often unexpressed philosophy. It is illustration and consummation, end quote. So in many ways, the artist is trying to bring you into their world, right? They're inviting you in. Rather than explaining a concept or idea with direct literal words and interpretations, which doesn't really create any sort of world to enter into, right? I, I mean, when you read a textbook, it's kind of just a bunch of words, right? There isn't an image that, that invites you in. So things are easily forgotten, confused, they're misinterpreted, right? But an image, a demonstration, a story, it has no correct interpretation. It is what it is and what you get from it or whatever that is, has a value that only you can see, right? But nonetheless, it is remembered as an experience rather than a lecture or just a bunch of words on a page, right? Art is the end of reason, but the beginning of something far more profound, the beginning of wisdom. I love this part uh, at the end where he's saying that art is often an unexpressed philosophy. It's an idea that hasn't been expressed explicitly, right? So when I was first writing my my fiction novel, I, I started off by writing a huge nonfiction essay, basically, right? And then I realized, like, you know, I'm I'm not freaking, <laughs> I'm not qualified to write a philosophy essay, you know. And then I just thought, well, like, why? Like, why write all this this nonfiction when I can write a fictional story, right? And, you know, I liked writing prose. I liked writing fiction. I liked writing short stories in high school. So I was like, you know, let's, let's write a fiction. So I wrote a fiction instead. And that fiction was, in many ways, an unexpressed philosophy. 
right? Showing people what I think is better than telling them what I think. So Nietzsche once said that one should, quote, write with their blood. Meaning they should write brutally, honestly. They should write from within, pulling out their inner world and inviting others to enter into their universe, right? Well, while Camus wants to know if he can live without appeal, he likewise wants to know if he can write without appeal. Quote, I want to liberate my universe of its phantoms and to people it solely with flesh and blood truths whose presence I cannot deny, end quote. This reminds me of a time in high school when, so my, my English teacher came up to me, like she, she asked me a question and I, I started giving this disclaimer, you know, I was like, oh, well, well, keep in mind, you know, like this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She's like, Greg, no disclaimers allowed. Don't ever give a disclaimer. Right. And what she was telling me there is that I don't need to argue with appeal. I need to argue without appeal. I need to answer without appeal. I need to write without appeal. Because giving a disclaimer is almost admitting guilt before you ever even begin your argument. Right. You're giving the contrary to your argument the disclaim prior to giving your claim, your argument or your words or whatever it is. Right. And we don't have to explain ourselves. We aren't guilty, right? We don't have to be guilty for whatever we're thinking. That's what art is for. Right. And if you don't get an explanation from a work of art, that's just the way it was supposed to be anyways. Right. So I'll leave this section off with an excerpt from the second to last page of it where Camus sort of brings back many of the concepts discussed throughout the previous chapter. Quote, The conqueror or the actor, the creator or Don Juan, may forget that their exercise in living could do, could not do without awareness of its mad character. One becomes accustomed so quickly. A man wants to earn money in order to be happy, and his whole effort and the best of a life are devoted to, to the earning of that money. Happiness is forgotten. The means are taken for the end. Likewise, the whole effort of this conqueror will be diverted to ambition, which was but a way toward a greater life. Don Juan, in turn, will likewise yield to his fate. Be satisfied with that existence whose nobility is of value only through revolt. For one, it is awareness, and for the other, revolt. In both cases, the absurd has disappeared. There is so much stubborn hope in the human heart. The most destitute men often end up by accepting illusion. That approval prompted by the need for peace inwardly parallels the existential consent. There are thus gods of light and idols of mud, but it is essential to find the middle path leading to the faces of man." End quote. So again, since I haven't read any Dostoevsky, uh, I'm going to skip the section of absurd creation titled Kirillov. I don't want to try and explain something I don't really have any business explaining, right? So with that said, we're going to move on to the third section 
ephemeral creation, which, uh, again, if you're not familiar with what ephemeral means, it just means fleeting. So dying, ever-changing, becoming, you name it. In the beginning, Camus points out how indifference cannot be the only quality of the absurd man, nor the absurd creation. And also, uh, before I kind of get too into this, I do want to say that this ephemeral creation section is probably one of the most important sections of the whole book before the myth of Sisyphus. Um, so I highly recommend reading this section in, in full. Anyways, if indifference is the only quality, then hope can easily return, thereby eliminating the qualities of the absurd. So this is why Camus kind of emphasizes in, in the beginning of this chapter why lucidity and alertness has been emphasized throughout the whole essay, right? Indifference is nothing without the alertness and awareness of everything around you of your blind spots and the fact that you can't know anything for certain. Right. Quote, one recognizes one's course by discovering the paths that stray from it, end quote. So I really love this quote. Not only is he expressing how one can stray from the absurd, but the quote itself uh, kind of gives a very profound and deeply insightful philosophical truth about life, right? A lot of times we don't really know what we want out of life until we've found out what we don't want, right? We don't know what the right path is until we've strayed from it. Back when I was in college, I struggled with addiction pretty badly. Um, I was smoking a lot of weed, way too much, and to the point where it felt like I couldn't really even go a day without being high i felt like i couldn't exist without it and while i had no idea what i wanted out of life it became pretty clear pretty fast over the course of the year um, back in like 2018 that i was definitely straying from the path i wanted in life and with with, with that recognition i was able to get a little bit closer to whatever path was mine to follow right um I, you know, I, I turned away from being addicted. I turned away from smoking pot every day. <laughs> and I finally kind of just went back and I went back to being lucid again, because a lot of times when we are addicted to things, when we get off of the path, right, it's when we're distracted. It's when we're not lucid. It's when we're, we're looking for some kind of escape, Right, we're looking for a way out. We're turning our backs on that that boulder that we push up the hill every day, right? And that's that's what addiction is a lot of the time. It's just us trying to run away and bury our heads in the sand while the rest of the world forgets about us. But you can't do that, and when you are on that other path, eventually, eventually. Hopefully, if you're on that path right now, whoever you are out there, I hope that you find that you're on the wrong one and that you turn back and go back to that path that you're supposed to be on. So, anyways, 
sometimes you just need to take a different path in life in order to find out that you took the wrong turn, right? You're you're not going to find out what the wrong turn is until you've taken the until you've taken that wrong turn, right? My my dad always told me that that he's only ever learned from making mistakes. That he's never learned by someone telling him what to do. He's learned by making the wrong decision and then realizing it was wrong and going back on the right path, right? So there's a line in Pink Floyd's song, Dogs, which is my absolute favorite song of all time. And honestly, if I was kind, I'd throw on the record and play for you guys, but... Uh, I'm thinking maybe I'll do an episode on it in the future and maybe the the whole album, the whole animals album. So anyways, but there's, there's this line where they're kind of telling the listener, the protagonist or whoever, uh, that they've been quote trained not to spit in the fan end quote. So a lot of times in our society, we're told and we're trained to not do certain things where that training was never required because if we did do those things, we'd find out pretty quickly that we shouldn't do it, right? Just the the natural consequence. So if you spit in a fan, you'll find quickly that the the fan will blow your spit back into your face, right? So... The, the analogy here, they're trained not to spit in a fan. They're trained to do things that will seem obvious, right? Like uh, like your parents can tell you, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. But until you actually touch the stove, you're not actually going to learn to not touch the stove, right? Like them telling you to not do it isn't going to make sense until you actually, you know, you break the rule and you touch the, touch the stove and like, ah, fuck, it's hot. Right. And you're going to feel that pain and you're not going to want to touch the stove ever again. Right. So, but in our society today, especially there's so many rules, so many things that people are telling us not to do where if we just did them, we'd, we'd find out pretty quickly not to do it. Right. So, All right, well, we'll move on. We'll move on. Quote, art can never be so well served as by a negative thought. Its dark and humiliated proceedings are as necessary to the understanding of a great work as black is to white. To work and create for nothing. To sculpture in clay. To know that one's creation has no future. To see one's work destroyed in a day while being aware that fundamentally... This has no more importance than building for centuries. This is the difficult wisdom that absurd thought sanctions. Performing these two tasks simultaneously, negating on the one hand and magnifying on the other, is the way open to the absurd creator. He must give the void its colors. So, the absurd creator negates the future, yet they magnify their art in the process. They're aware of its ephemeral nature, of its fleeting nature, yet they create it anyways. And the creation of art is, it's its giving to the void its colors, as you said, right? One is giving color to the fact that everything becomes dark and meaningless eventually. 
everything fades. Yet what is fading without something to fade away, right? So many people have criticized Nietzsche of his constant contradictions, but Camus sort of gives a defense for him in this section by highlighting the aspect of becoming for the creator, right? A profound thought is in a constant state of becoming. It adopts the experience of a life and assumes its shape. Likewise, a man's soul creation is strengthened in its successive and multiple aspects, his works. One after another, they complement one another, correct or overtake one another, contradict one another too, end quote. So a profound thought is not one thought, but it's one evolving, ever-changing, and ever-becoming thought that eventually reaches its conclusion with the death of the thinker. In a sense, he is describing thought not as a sentence or one single idea, but rather the endless stream of thought and works and creations of the thinker, right? It's not just a bucket full of water from the river. It's, it's the whole river. So it, it, it's, it's like a plant that eventually grows itself to death, right? Much like life itself, thoughts grow to contradict themselves and predate upon what they once were. Thought evolves and adapts. To capture one thought of a philosopher and say that it's say that, that whole philosopher is ignorant, it's like getting one ugly leaf from a tree and saying that the whole thing's ugly, even though it's it's a beautiful tree, right? This is why, quote, taking things out of context is so bad and rampant in the modern day, right? People take little tidbits of conversations or, you know, interviews on the news are like five minutes long. And uh, they 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 interview people for far too short a time. And because of that, our society. Getting only these tidbits of information, we have that short attention span now. We, we won't hear people out till the end. Right. Um, and that's why I really love podcasts, because they like long form conversation podcasts because they give people a chance to give their full point of view um, in such a way where you, you kind of get a glimpse of who they are. You can hear them out, right? <clears throat> so a full thought, or at least the fullest you can get in uh, one to three hours of your time is what you can get from a podcast, right? So... He furthers his point and writes, quote, a succession of works can be but a series of approximation of the same thought. At the moment of death, the succession of his works is but a collection of failures. But if those failures all have the same resonance, the creator has managed to repeat the image of his own condition to make the air echo with the sterile secret he possesses, end quote. Now, I love the use of the word secret here, right? Because the secret is not something that the author is intentionally holding back, right? But rather the idea they have been trying to express throughout the entire collection of their works. It's a wordless epiphany they've tried and tried again to express, but have always failed, right? Because, because a wordless thought can't be expressed. It can't be expressed with an image. It can't be expressed with Words, it can't be expressed with anything. It's inexpressible, right? 
And so the secret they're trying to tell is likewise a secret to them. It's a secret to the creator. Secret they've only ever seen glimpses of, right? Because every time they see it, it immediately slips away. This is, again, that Nietzsche quote. Every new ideal immediately becomes a retrograde movement. The original idea can never be fully revealed or expressed in words or an action or a feeling or a smell or a sight or anything, right? It is revealed spontaneously only within the confines of the human mind. Again, hence the secret. Now, I... I like this because uh, after this, he kind of gets a little union. He writes, quote, perhaps the great work of art has less importance in itself than in the ordeal it demands of a man and the opportunity it provides him of overcoming his phantoms and approaching a little closer to his naked reality, end quote. In a sense, he is saying that art is how one faces their shadow and understands themselves. I think art is very similar to active imagination. So, and that's kind of where you more or less take your imagination seriously and you kind of let it take you along the archetypes and you kind of just like, you know, you, you can pretend that there's a figure you can ask it, you know, stuff like that. So we, we create art to delve into our own inner demons or the Jungian shadow and find what lies deep within us, uncovering a little more of this secret that Camus was talking about, right? To create is likewise to give a shape to one's fate. For all these characters, their work defines them at least as much as it is defined by them. The actor taught us this. There is no frontier between being and appearing, end quote. But the writer teaches us too, right? There is no separating who they are from what they appear to be, from what they create and what they write. By creating, we are shaping what our life has amounted to. We are showing the path that we are on, along with all the paths we've mistakenly turned upon. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with the final two paragraphs of this chapter. After that, I'll catch you guys on the finale of the myth of Sisyphus. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Last one, which I'm going to do with Jamal. And we're basically going to read the final chapter and kind of just go over it and discuss it. So uh, thank you so much for listening, you guys. I really appreciate y'all. And here's the last little bit of Camus. Let me repeat. None of all this has any real meaning. Disclaimer. <laughs> On the way to that liberty, there's still a progress to be made. The final effort for these related minds, creator or conquer, is to manage to free themselves also from their undertakings. Succeed in granting that the very work, whether it be conquest, love, or creation, may well not be. Consummate thus the utter futility of any individual life, indeed that gives them more freedom in the realization of that work. Just as becoming aware of the absurdity of life authorized them to plunge into it with every excess. All that remains is a fate whose outcome alone is fatal. Outside of that single fatality of death, everything, joy or happiness, is liberty. A world remains of which man is the sole master. What bound him was the illusion of another world. The outcome of his thought ceasing to be renunciatory. Flowers and images. It frolics. It myths, to be sure. But myths with no other depth than that of a human suffering, and like it, inexhaustible.
not the divine fable that amuses and blinds, but the terrestrial face, gesture, and drama, in which are summed up the difficult wisdom and an ephemeral passion. End quote. Bye-bye.